right, everybody. We're going to get started. Actually, if you're standing, stay standing. If you're sitting down, stand up real quick. We're going to read the scriptures. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, good morning. Well, Riverbend, yes, another lively 9 a.m. Yes, you've done it. Thank you. Uh, we are in Galatians. Uh, my name is Brooke. If we haven't met, pleasure to meet you. Um, we are going to read the scripture out loud together. This is a practice we do every week uh, to just remember the importance of God's word, to read it together, uh, to unify ourselves under God's word. So if you would, would you read this out loud with me today, the verse that we're going to be studying today. But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Pray with me if you would. Holy Spirit, we invite you into this space, into this moment in time. We ask for you to do the work that only you can do of revealing and unveiling and helping us see you more clearly. For those who are here today who are just having a hard morning, we ask that you would just show grace and help and peace. For those who are struggling with questions of the future, what to do, how to do it, what's the next step, what's the big decision, God, would you give rest and peace and hope to those? And God, I pray that as your word is read and understood, that you would grow us all in closeness and proximity to you, that we would take on these character qualities as we sit under your teaching, Lord, as we sit under your teaching, Holy Spirit. I pray this for your glory and our good. And everyone said joyfully because it matters. Amen. Amen. Grab a seat if you can. It was uh, the year 2014. I don't know where you were. Take a minute to think where you were at 2014. There was a moment so someone just mo moaned. Oh, 2014. Uh, 2014, there was this movie that was released that I particularly was inclined to for the storyline and the premise. And that movie's uh, entitled Whiplash. And this is not about, someone chuckled, it's not about a car accident or being rear-ended. That's not what the movie's about. This is a story of a 19-year-old uh, named Andrew who wants to be the greatest jazz drummer in the world. He's like in league with Buddy Rich, all these people. He wants to be the man. And the goal, his goal, uh, is still strong despite the fact that he didn't actually come from a family that was musically inclined. He didn't have this pedigree in his line. He's just decided, I'm going to be this person. So he starts and finally gets into this school called Schaefer Conservatory of Music School. And uh, it's supposed to be the best school in the United States. And at Schaefer specifically, this school, uh, the best or to be the best means you're accepted to study under this one man. Uh, his character in the movie is named Terrence Fletcher. He's played by J.K. Simmons. And this guy, Andrew, quickly learns that Fletcher, the teacher, he operates on fear and intimidation, and he never settles for what he would consider less than the best each and every time. Some of you are like, this is causing a lot of uh, trauma. My parents were like this, like I'm overwhelmed. 
But this was the experience that this character, Andrew, had. And for Fletcher, the teacher, being the best meant to him, not just playing well, it actually meant knowing, knowing what you were playing and if you were playing something wrong, why it was wrong. His modus operandi was to create an atmosphere of fear for every man and for every woman and to create this culture of like him or herself uh, for yourself. Regardless, this guy, Andrew, he works really hard. He uses all of his willpower to like reach this really insane goal, which to ruin the movie for you, he does. Uh, then there's this really important moment in the movie where he just stops and he looks at his life priorities and he has to ask a really big question if he's willing to sacrifice as much as he's sacrificing to be the best. I mean, how much emotional abuse will he endure from this teacher to reach this greatness? Now, this movie is, to me, a, a fascinating example of willpower that is baked into our culture and into our minds as individuals. This idea that if we just put our minds to it, we can accomplish anything. Now, some of you are like, but we can. But that's only partially true, isn't it? The truth is, reality, we can't do whatever we want. We all have limits, don't we? We don't like to accept it. Our world doesn't like to talk about it. It's even uncomfortable right now to mention. I see your faces. You don't all see your faces. I do. But we have limits in skill. We have limits in our family upbringing. We have limits in economic upbringing. We have limits even in our desire. In a self-help generation, which we exist in, that thrives on the individual taking control, right? You take control and you become your own boss. I mean, how many of you are here because you're like, I'm going to become my own boss and work whenever I want and I want to do my thing and I'm moving to Ben to do this. Like, that's some of your story. You're laughing because you know it's true. You're your own boss now. And there's pros. There's also big cons to that. And you say, you know, our title, instead of I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, it's I can do all things through me who strengthens me. And we must, you and I, if we're sitting under the teachings of Jesus, we must look back at what Jesus teaches as reality. So we can thrive and not just exist. Because that idea that you can be anything at any time is not actually true. It's not what the scriptures teach anyway. And this mindset, that willpower is most important, often presents itself even, and especially when it comes to our spiritual lives. Uh, last week, uh, as, as we mentioned, or excuse me, as I mentioned a few weeks, weeks ago, when it comes to spiritual activities, we usually just try harder, don't we? But in reality, we actually want to train harder. Two weeks ago, I spoke about this. If you want to know more, you can listen to that. But I use this silly example of the different methods that I used to train for a marathon, which was not really training. And my wife, who trained for the same marathon, she actually followed the program. And she, in turn, just whooped me. It was, she beat me by a lot. So, humbling thing. But we need to train harder. And we use the example of spiritual disciplines to train in. So, here we find ourselves again, looking at these wonderful attributes of the fruit of the Spirit, but still looking at the different ways in which we work them into our lives. So let me ask you a few questions we already know the answers to. Is it about trying harder? No, it's not. Is it about training harder? Yes, and again, we use the examples of spiritual disciplines to train him. But another question that often comes up when it comes to the fruit of the Spirit and how we work these things into our lives 
is specifically the example that I mentioned in the movie above. It's willpower. And willpower can be tricky because we have to determine in our minds to actually be a certain type of person who lives in a certain way. For example, you woke up this morning and you decided, I'm the type of person that goes to church. And, and some of you are like, I'm the type of person that wants to be on time. And other people are like, I'll get there when I get there. Or then there's a family that's like, we're going to be on time, but then you have this caveat of children. And you're like, we're late, but we wanted to be early, so there's tension. So I'm sitting here mildly angry, coming down from a really intense moment, right? You had this willpower, didn't all work out, we can't control everything. But this idea of willpower is misleading and can be misguiding in our spiritual formation because it doesn't always actively open us to the fruit of the Spirit. Let me, let me explain. As Phil mentioned last week, we also have a sinful nature, right? Sabotages us a lot in our pursuits. So what do we do? Well, our ordinary method of dealing with ingrained sin, if you're anything like me, it's to launch a frontal attack, right? We rely on willpower and sheer determination to deal with our sin, don't we? Uh, and whatever the issue is, if it's anger or fear or bitterness or pride or lust or substance abuse, we determine what? I'm never going to do it again. I'm never going to do that again. I'm never going to be mad again. I'm never going to say that again. I'm never going to do that again. Uh, we pray against it. We fight against it. We essentially set our will against our sin. But even with all of those honest, good desires, even with all of our willpower, we still fall short. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? In his excellent book uh, entitled Freedom from Sinful Thoughts, Henny Arnold writes something very interesting. He says, we want to make it quite clear that we cannot free and purify our own heart by exerting our own will. You and I cannot use our will to become more holy by ourselves alone. Uh, Colossians, in the writings of Paul, he wrote something in Colossians 2, which is very helpful to understand this particular idea of willpower and Jesus and the dynamic of religiosity. It says this, for you were included in the death of Christ and have died with him to the religious systems and powers of this world. So don't retreat back to being bullied by the standards and opinions of religion. For example, there are strict requirements. You can't associate with that person or, or don't eat that or you can't touch that. These are the doctrines of men and corrupt customs that are worthless to help you spiritually. For though they may appear to possess the promise of wisdom in their submission to God through the deprivation of their physical bodies, it is actually nothing more than empty rules rooted in religious rituals. This is legalism. Some of you grew up in this. Some of this, this, is the, the, this was the tone of your home or your experience with Jesus. And even right now, you might be reading this and going, this is kind of disarming or jarring. And the reality is it is. It's, legalism is not the way of Jesus. There's this idea in the scriptures called will worship or worship of the will. And it actually comes from this passage in Colossians. And will worship essentially is, it's enslaving. It's a sense of self-determination and it's corrupting, it's intoxicating, and ultimately destructive. Worship of the will is the moment that we feel that we can succeed and attain victory over sin by the strength of our own will alone. And when we do that, it is the moment we are worshiping the will. 
I think that's a slide. Yeah, keep that up there for a minute. Now, for some of you, you're like, I'm more passive. I, I don't have as much willpower. So I understand that maybe for some, this is easier to go. Like, that's not really maybe as big of a deal. But for some, this is a major, major issue. And I think it's ironic that Paul looks at our most strenuous efforts in the spiritual walk throughout his writings, and he calls them idolatry or will worship. Because here's the truth. Willpower will never succeed in dealing with the deeply ingrained sin habits that we have. We have to figure out something else. Henny Arnold writes one more time, as long as we think we can save ourselves by our own willpower, we will only make the evil in us stronger than ever. Not only is it wrong and worshipful and idolatry, it actually makes your problem worse when you just try to conquer this on your own. Now, this same truth has been experienced by all the great writers of devotional life. So if you think that this is just a made-up idea, you can read St. Augustine, St. Francis, John Calvin, John Wesley, Teresa of Avail, Juliana of Norwich. They've all experienced the same thing and have talked about it in depth. Will worship may produce an outward show of success for a time. But what happens eventually is the cracks and crevices of our lives, our deep inner condition, uh, will eventually be revealed. This is why when you try really hard to be a nice person and then someone's really rude and you blow up, you're like, where did that come from? That came from inside of you because it's in there, because it's a part of who you are. We try so hard, but sooner or later, that, there, there comes this unguarded moment when the careless word slips out and we reveal the true condition of our heart. It's humbling. If we're full of compassion, as an example, it will be revealed. But if we're full of bitterness, that will also be revealed. It's not that we plan to be this way. We have no intention, as an example, of exploding with anger or parading some sort of sticky arrogance. But listen here, when we are with people, who we are comes out. When we're with people, who we are comes out. That's why marriage is so effective in your formation. Because you committed your life to do life with a person all the time. You go to bed with a person, you wake up with a person, and it's a constant reminder that you actually have things within you to work out. Now, there's no shame in that. We all do. The worst thing you can do is pretend that you don't. The best thing you can do is say, yeah, I have a lot of room to grow because who we are comes out with people. Now, though we try to hide these things, oftentimes we're betrayed by ourselves, by our eyes, by our tongue, by our body language. Willpower, as an example, has no defense against those careless words that just slip out and those unguarded moments when who you really are just is revealed. And the will, as an example, has the same deficiency as the law. It can only deal with your external actions. It's incapable of bringing about the necessary transformation of the inner spirit. So now that we know the problem, can I give you a little hope? When we despair, from, from gaining this inner transformation, when we see who we really are, when marriage truly is a mirror that reflects back to us and we're really disappointed with what we see in that mirror, when we're actually in that space, we can realize a new, there's a whole new realization that inner righteousness is a gift from God to be graciously received. The needed change within you and within me in my life is actually God's work, not ours alone. It's a teaming up. The demand 
actually for you and I to change and to actually have these spirit, the, the spirits that we're talking about, the fruits of the spirit into our lives is actually an inside job that only God can do from the inside out. We cannot attain it or earn this righteousness. And I know this is gonna be hard for some of you. You're like, I gotta earn it. You can't earn it. You cannot earn the gift of grace that God has already given you. So with all of this swirling about, with willpower and all that, I just want to look at three things. I want to look at what these last three fruits are of faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We're going to cover what they are, why possessing them is important to you, to me, to the world, and how do we receive these graces. So first, the next fruit of the Spirit that we had was faithfulness. So we're going to address that really quick. What is faithfulness? Faithfulness is simply steadfast consistency or allegiance. Now, faithfulness, obviously, we're talking in this context, faithfulness to God, to his word, to his way. But it's carefulness in keeping what you're entrusted with. Essentially, in our context, it's a conviction that the scriptures accurately reflect reality. Have you been with people that have been through so much pain or trouble or trauma in life that they have these alternate realities that they live in? You hear them communicate or talk about a reality and you're like, there's something very off with how you perceive the world. The scriptures are actually something that ground us and give us consistency in what is real and what is not. Now, let's talk about biblical faithfulness. Biblical faithfulness requires belief in what the Bible says about God, about his existence, about his works, and about his character. So being faithful to God in that space means believing that. Faithfulness is a fruit of the Spirit, and it's the result of the Spirit working in us. Uh, just a few weeks ago, I was at a camp, and uh, essentially, I, I get to be here at Riverbend half time, but the other half of my time, I get to lead a nonprofit with my wife and her parents, and they were speaking at a particular camp, and I came out to do sit on this Q&R panel and answer questions, and essentially, it was this camp called Forest Home. I hadn't really experienced this camp before, but this was a camp that started in 1938 by a lot of godly people, and so many incredibly godly righteous people have gone through that space, led in that space. So I'm sitting with the president of the, of the camp now, and he's like driving us around on one of those little carts that can go anywhere or whatever, like the off-roading things. And, and he's showing me all these spaces. And he said, oh, over here is where, where Billy Graham finally decided to really commit his life to Jesus. I was like, wait, 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 wait. Billy Graham, can we talk about this for a minute? Like, I know that name, it's a big deal. And he basically shared this story that I found out is actually very much happened. It's a documented uh, piece of history. But the story goes that Billy Graham, before he really actually started his main ministry, he was already starting small crusades and he was beginning to begin momentum and effectiveness in helping people experience the gospel. And so he actually goes up to this camp and he's speaking, but when he was called up to, to this camp, a couple days before, he was having incredible turmoil in his soul, believing if all of this stuff he's like preaching to people is actually real. He's saying, is this real? I don't even know if I can trust the Bible. Now, what was also going on is he had a friend who was very high up in the sense of his understanding of the scriptures and faith, basically saying, I don't think I buy any of this. So you have a friend, a trusted friend at a time, speaking all of these doubts, and then his own doubt coupled in this moment where he was overwhelmed thinking, is any of this real? And so as the story goes, he basically went out into the woods one morning, takes his Bible, and he sets it down on this stump which we, they actually were able to mark where that was. He puts his Bible on this stump and he basically says, God, I don't know for sure if this is all like really real. 
but I choose from this moment on to believe that your word is real, that you are who you say you are, and I'm not gonna doubt it anymore. For the questions that I don't understand, I'm gonna trust you with them, but I'm choosing from this day forward to, to follow you with everything. And this beautiful moment happened where he left. The next day it was said that he was preaching in that space and there was a new power on him. And this was about six weeks before he started something called the LA Crusades, which is where he actually started leading millions of people to Jesus. It was the beginning, it was right before God really opened up and used his life. He decided to say, I don't understand it all, but I'm choosing to follow you. That's what faithfulness looks like. As I was by this rock that was dedicated to him, I put my hand on it. I made Phil and Diane do it too. And I was like, we need to pray this into our generation. I want to pray that I would be a man that's faithful even in my lack of understanding. That we would raise kids and that there would be more people rose up or raised up in this generation that actually decide to be faithful even when there are concerns and doubts. They choose to trust. So in that moment, you know, Billy Graham decided to believe and he, he basically prayed, believe, help my unbelief. And that's the prayer for us. I believe, but help my unbelief. In Hebrews 11, just for a couple biblical examples, there's this example of a guy named Enoch, if you remember. And in Hebrews 11, it actually says, uh, this is the phrase, it's, it's a, it says that he was actually taken up, that he was so pleasing to God that he didn't die. God just basically beamed him up to heaven. You ever read that? Like, you ever reading that? Like, whoa, he didn't die. I don't know how he got up there, but he just stopped existing. And the word says that it was because he was pleasing to God. God was like, I'm so into this. This guy loves me so much. Get up here, bro. Just come on up. <laughs> and the verse goes on to say that without faith, it's impossible to please God. Because if you, and this is Hebrews 5, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and this is my favorite part, and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. God actually rewards you. I know we don't talk about like rewards and serving God a lot, but like that's a really sweet benefit. I like that part. Like he rewards those who follow him. So faith or a faithful commitment to God is basically walking with him. If you remember Jesus's ministry, he would travel and he would respond to people's faith. And where people didn't have faith, he stopped his involvement and moved on. Faith was the prerequisite for his activity in their life. Friends, if you are wondering why God might not be working, I would ask yourself, do you believe? Do you trust that Jesus can actually do the things? Is this something that you have actually fully absorbed or not? Enoch understood that God rewards those who seek him. And it was beautiful. So we trust what God does because we trust him, not the other way around. In other words, the idea is that we trust God even when he's silent or when we don't see the miracles that we so hope for. That's part of faithfulness. We know that God's reliable, steadfast, and true, even despite the vagaries of life. Functionally, that means that we believe what the Bible says. We choose to believe. Now, it doesn't mean we don't ask good questions and aren't intelligent about our pursuits of Jesus, but it does mean that there's a baseline foundation that we choose to believe. Now, just really quick. All of that sounds nice, but what if you're here and you're really struggling with doubt and everything I just said really falls on deaf ears and you're like, I don't really connect with this at all. Let me just give you a quick word. Uh, life often, as I'm learning it and many of you already have, life is often about tension. Things are often really good and very hard all at the same time. Uh, life has many questions that I nor some of the smartest people in the world can answer. 
life is full of that tension. But we often want 100% sure answers and directions before we commit to someone or something, don't we? We want to know it's going to pan out. I need the numbers. I need a good ROI. That's what I need. But can I gently tell you as a friend, um, that's not reality. Whether you choose to accept that or not, that is not how healthy people move through the world. Healthy people that understand reality from the biblical perspective, they make a choice and then they choose with the spirit and their will to love that choice each day, especially when it gets hard, especially when it gets hard. So may I just encourage you for a minute, don't inject from your faith because of one hard moment or misspoken word from someone who is just as confused or just as hurt as you are. Faithfulness is choosing to believe and leaving the things that you can't yet fully understand in the tension of a creator who wants good things for you. God is not here to ruin your life. He's here to give you a better life. It's just not the way that you think. So that's faithfulness. Secondly, gentleness. Gentleness um, actually can also be translated meekness, uh, which does not mean weakness, uh, but meekness. It involves humility and thankfulness towards God and a polite, almost like restrained behavior towards other people. I need more of this. Anybody else? I need more of gentleness in my life. Now, the opposite of gentleness is pretty obvious. Uh, anger, desire for re revenge, self-exaggeration, right? We understand that. I love what uh, Ephesians 4 says. It's right to the point. Uh, Ephesians 4, verse 2 and 3. With tender humility and quiet patience, always demonstrate gentleness and generous love towards one another. And this is the line that is so frustrating. Especially towards those who may try your patience. Especially towards the hard people. We're supposed to show gentleness. Gentleness is key, right, for healthy relationships and life. It's a tone, it's your posture of heart, it's how you move through the world. Gentleness is actually a huge, huge component when it comes to a healthy marriage. When you're harsh and rough and like, I, I always get in this space where I'll be like business mode and then I forget to turn that off and I come home and talk to my wife and she's like, I, I'm not one of your business partners. I'm like, oh, that's right, I'm sorry. Uh, I need to, need to change, change that tone. But it's our disposition. Um, the Greek word for meek is actually praus, and the word praus was borrowed from this military, uh, the Greek military, and it relates actually to horse training. Any horse lovers in, in the room? Anybody? You are, don't lie. Some of you are. I know you are. Uh, but a cool story and a word picture that's found in Greek literature, I want to share it with you. Um, there, there's this thing that would happen in the Greek army. The Greek army would find the wildest horses in the mountains, and they would bring them in to be broken in. And after months and months of training, these uh, horses would be sorted out into categories. So some would be discarded, some broken and made useful for like uh, bearing burdens or carrying different weight around. Some were useful for ordinary duty. And there was just a few that would actually graduate as a war horse. Now, when a horse was, had passed the condition required to be a war horse, its state was described in Greek as praus which is meek. The war horse had this power under authority, strength under control. A war horse never ceased to be determined or strong or passionate. It was all of those things. 
but it learned to bring its nature under discipline. It gave up the wild, unruly, and out of control and rebellious spirit. The war horse learned to bring that nature under control. And it would now then respond to the slightest touch. It would respond to this. It would stand in the face of cannon fire. Uh, it would run into battle and stop at a whisper. It was meek. That was the description. And here's the truth. Jesus is meek. Moses was meek. And you can be meek with the power of the Spirit. Do not think that gentleness is weakness. In fact, it is completely the opposite. It is strength under control. The strongest of people are often the most gentle. And when you see a gentle person, dig into their story. There's often a lot of strength there. Jesus was meek. Lastly, self-control. Uh, this is a good one, completely convicting. Just buckle up. I'm going to warn you now. Um, the last characteristic, self-control. Now, as a reminder, just in case you forgot, the fruit of the Spirit is the change of our character, and it comes about of the Holy Spirit's work in us. As an example, we don't become Christians on our own, right? The Spirit does that in us. Self-control is incredibly important. It's incredibly important. And, of course, we can, also, we can understand that self-control is the ability to control oneself. If you have children, you're constantly teaching this, aren't you? Like, please have self-control. Don't scream when you don't get what you want. Please use your words. These are the words you should use. Stop freaking out. Like, this is a very daily conversation with us. Our four-year-old right now is figuring, like, learning words are way more effective than screaming. But self-control involves moderation. It involves constraint. I don't like any of these words, by the way. Moderation, constraint, the ability to say no to our baser desires or our fleshly lusts. Now, one of the proofs of God working in our life, if you're wondering, is God actually working in my life, is the ability to control your thoughts and your words and your actions. When you actually stop and go, oh, I shouldn't say that, that's the spirit working in your life. Or, you ha or you're tempted by something, you're like, I shouldn't do that. That's just not good for me. Like, I shouldn't do that. Now, it's not that you're naturally weak-willed. It's not that. It's not that you and I are just weak-willed people. Some are, but the majority of people aren't. Our fallen nature is under this influence of sin. The Bible calls it in Romans 6, being a slave to sin. You've experienced this before. One of my favorite definitions of sin is fulfilling a legitimate need through illegitimate means. That's a great definition of sin. You're fulfilling a legitimate need through illegitimate means. And that is our world right now. Would you agree? We have a need to be calm, don't we? We want peace, deep inner peace. I know I do. But instead of doing the hard work of understanding why we might be anxious or doing the relational work that we might need to actually experience that peace, we drink. We binge watch. Uh, I really miss Blockbuster. Anybody? I just miss the forced self-control of renting two movies and being able to absorb only those two. It was great. It was helpful for my personality. Uh, but we binge watch, right? And then you, then you finally get the doctor to sign off on medical marijuana, which ends up opening up a whole other world to you that you're like, whoa, there's all these other things now I can do. We're so lonely, aren't we? But instead of doing the hard work in your relationship with your spouse, of being close and humbling yourself and being vulnerable uh, to know and to be known, we isolate. We have a hookup culture. We binge pornography. That's how we deal with the things. And here's the thing. Those are legitimate needs. 
They're just met with illegitimate means. And it's only by the power of the Holy Spirit that you're going to actually get the strength that you need to overcome. Yes, it takes a certain amount of willpower and choosing to do it, but it takes so much more. The grace of the Holy Spirit in your life. And without the power of the Holy Spirit, we are incapable of knowing and choosing even how to best meet our needs. If I lived my life doing what I just felt in the moment, I would self-destruct. Like, I want ice cream all the time, like anybody. Like, not good for, I, I would die. If I just started doing what I felt and just followed each of those desires, it would lead to a very hard life very quick. Now, even if you're like, you know what, like say, say for example, you smoke, you're like, I, I need to stop smoking. What often happens is when we, when we do this in our flesh, when we do this in our own willpower, we often like give up one thing only to gain another. So you're like, I'm gonna give up smoking, but now I'm addicted to comfort. Now like everything has to be comfortable all the time. Everything is about my comfort, my life. This is what's happening. It, it enslaves us in a different way. So we give up one enslaving option for another. But when we were saved, when we accepted Christ, know who he is, we were set free. And that liberty even includes freedom from sin. Uh, in ancient cities a long time ago, when they needed safety, they would build this massive wall. In ancient times, walls were the, the signpost that you were safe. It gave physical, mental uh, security. It was the way that you actually stayed alive to keep out the enemy. And self-control is like a wall that you intentionally build up around you for your protection. Self-control is the wall around us. Now, if we don't exhibit self-control, and if we continue to go into this sin, it will just continue to enslave us. It's a crazy cycle. Self-control, the fruit of the Spirit that we're talking about, is a gift that frees you. You might think that you're saying no to something, but you're actually being set free. It frees you to enjoy the benefits of a healthy body. It frees you to rest in the security of good stewardship. It frees you from a guilty conscience. Self-control actually helps us and restricts the indulgence of our foolish desires and we find liberty to love and live as we were meant to. Self-control is a huge gift for us. It's a wall that God wants to help you build up in your life. So these are the three fruits, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Now, before we end and talk about how the grace works into our life, I just wanna give you one practice this week. As we talked about, we wanna train harder, not try harder. What is something that we can train in this week to actually be able to help us be more aware of the fruit of the Spirit and work this into our lives? I just wanna give you one practice, one idea for you to take today. And that's the practice of praying scripture. This practice allows God to direct the content of your prayer. So I don't know about you, I have a prayer list and sometimes my prayer list, like it starts real godly and then about three columns down, it just gets real self-focused real quick. And this is a wonderful opportunity for letting the scripture uh, direct the content of your prayer. It opens the heart to praying particular prayers, the Psalms, the teachings of, and hopes found in the Bible. So in the early church, <clears throat> believers were taught to pray the scriptures. And this is a beautiful, beautiful gift. So let me just give you a quick example of what this could look like this week. So I'm gonna give you three points because uh, you all like three, but it's actually one point. So uh, first, use the Lord's Prayer as a pattern for prayer. Secondly, uh, use the Lord's Prayer as a pattern for prayer. And then third today, so you can feel good, uh, use the Lord's Prayer as a pattern of prayer. 
So those are your three points today, all the same one. And I want to give you an example, and that, thank you, Greg, for uh, your wisdom on that. Good joke. Uh, but we want to we actually get this into our lives. And I want you to this week, if there's one thing you can do, just one thing, use the Lord's Prayer as a pattern for your prayer. Can I give you an example? Uh, let's just go through this line by line really quick. Okay, we'll go to the Lord's Prayer, Matthew chapter 5, or 6, sorry. Um, our Father in heaven, what is this version? Yeah, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. This week, spend some time thanking God for his fatherly love and attention. Just thank him for it. Ponder who he is. Ask him for him to continue to be a good father to you. Next line, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Turn your prayer to actually God's purposes. Start asking God, God, what do you want to come about in my city, in my life, in my story? Where are you trying to bring your kingdom into my life? Where am I bringing my own agenda and not your kingdom's? It could look like you saying there, God, forgive me for all the priorities that I have prioritized above my relationship with you. You could even consider what God's kingdom and agenda might be in your relationship with the world. So you pray that in. Next line, give us this day our daily bread. Pray for your needs. God gives us permission in his word to pray for our needs. For those whose lives are closely linked to your own, pray for other people, people that are in danger, that are suffering. Forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. Uh, this is a moment for you to confess your grudges, your bitterness, when you didn't walk in faithfulness, when you didn't walk in gentleness, when you didn't walk in self-control. It's a time to confess oversensitivity. Sit at the foot of the cross. Thank God that you're forgiven. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This is an idea that we look ahead in our day and we think and we notice the tasks and the transactions ahead of us. We go, what's going on in my day? I know my dispositions. I know that I actually need to be aware and where can I actually be smart and intelligent about living in the ways of Jesus? Become aware of the ways that you're tempted to spin the truth or manage your image. Pray for God to come over and protect you now, that's just one example. If you're feeling convicted by sin, turn to Psalm 51 and let David's words of confession become your words of confession. Look at Psalm 32 and read through and pray David's prayers. This week, may I please encourage you to pray in the scriptures. Let God's words become your words for your life. So how do we receive this grace? Lastly, we'll be done. Uh, John chapter 1, verse 16, uh, wonderful little sentence that's very helpful, and I want to unpack it really quick. It's this, for his fullness, speaking of Jesus, we have all received, and grace upon grace. Have you read that before? Grace upon grace. Jesus is full of grace, right? And John says that that fullness, we, we John, his original readers, the rest of us, we have that fullness as we've trusted in Jesus. But we've received grace and more grace. Now, one hallmark of any interaction with Jesus is grace. We receive grace and then more grace served on top of grace and then in place of that more grace. The point is that Jesus is full of grace and those who know him get showered with it. 
to help us understand just a little bit more of how rad this actually is, listen to the amplified version of this. And the amplified version is just a version of the Bible where the Greek is actually spelled out a little bit. The words are actually stretched out a little to help us understand deeper. It says this, for out of his fullness or abundance, we have all received. And then right there, meaning all had share and we were all supplied with one grace after another and spiritual blessing upon spiritual blessing and even favor upon favor and gift heaped upon gift. Are we alive? Is anybody, that's incredible. We are given from him whatever each of us requires for the perfection of our character and fulfill, and for fulfillment of our life's purpose. Can I say that again? We are given in Jesus whatever each of us require for perfection in our own character and fulfillment for our life's purpose. God wants to help you grow and he wants to help you fulfill what he's made you to do. It comes down to simply saying, Jesus, since I trust you, would you give me one grace after another and spiritual blessing upon spiritual blessing and even favor upon favor and gift heaped upon gift? How we receive this grace is through trust. It's through back to faithfulness. How we walk in the fruit of the spirit is by you and I actually stopping, pausing, slowing down and saying, Jesus, I trust. I don't understand all of this. I mean, I don't understand all of this, you guys. Like I'm sitting here talking with you. I don't understand so much. There's so many things I miss. But at the same time, I've seen God so active so many times that I cannot deny the reality of Jesus and his kingdom. I cannot do it. And so when you are a person that definitively says, God, I trust you, you begin to open up your life for the power of the spirit and these wonderful fruits to be worked inside of you. And that is the God we serve. He's so generous. We often sit whimpering and whining and he just wants to heap gift upon gift upon gift upon you. Like, God, I didn't get my way. He's like, I've got so much more for you than your way. Like, have you decided that, have you figured that out yet, that God's ways are so much better? He invites you into this adventurous life. But the one caveat is that you have to trust him to receive this gift. That's how it works. It's not more complicated than that. Simple to understand, hard to live out. We must trust his power and who he is and who he says he is. And that he has the power to change your life from the inside out. He does, friends. Let's stand. We're going to pray. This is a good moment for us to just reflect. We're going to pray for a moment. And there's just no rush in this space. The whole point is for us to to reflect. And so, Holy Spirit, we invite you to come right now. And we ask for you to move in this space, to build us up, to convict, to encourage, to exhort, to do all the stuff that you do. Holy Spirit, we just ask now that you would come in your gentle, loving, kind way and convict and bring life to us. We know that we miss this often. 
But God, we do also confess that we want to walk in the fruit of the Spirit. And so I ask today that you would just give us awareness. If we are those who are just walking in willpower and living out our faith with our will, would you just gently nudge us, show us that? And would you help us walk in a better way, a fuller way of you, with life with you and with your Spirit? We thank you, God, for your activity in our life. And we move from this space today it's just saying and confessing clearly, we really need you. We really need you, Holy Spirit. And so as we take the bread and cup, as we pray, as we give, as we connect with one another, I ask that you would just bring to life uh, your truth and you'd bless us today. Speak richly, Spirit, as we stand. At this time, uh, we're going to open the tables during this next song. You can grab the bread, you can grab the cup. There's a table up here, a table in the back. Um, and this is also a time for us to just gather and sing together. So grab the bread and the cup, come back to your seat, and we'll take that together. The prayer wall is also open. If you need prayer for anything, there's men and women that would love to pray for you. So take advantage of that. But tables are open. Let's sing.